Father Harrison, I feel super important right now. Why is that? Maybe actually too important than what I should feel. But a few a few months ago, I mean, you always feel pretty self. Yeah, so this is a big deal. That I feel even more important than usual. Because yeah. <laughs> let's be honest, I'm a really big deal. Um, but a few I months mean, ago, I mean, Ethan did say on the last crunch. Oh, sorry. Anyways, who? <laughs> In regards to you. What's Who? that? Yeah, whatever. Who? Whatever. Everyone, Who? everyone, shut Who? up. I'm trying to tell a story. I'm sorry. Okay, let's tell your story. <laughs> a few months ago, I get a call. And the call is from our vicar for clergy. Now, Father Harrison, you have a vicar for clergy, right? Nope. You don't? Nope. Do you have someone who's in charge of personnel stuff? Nope. Okay. Oh, well, sort of. I mean, it's a team. So who, it's the vicar general, cha- the chancellor, the bishop. And yeah, the yeah. Priest. Is there is there someone who would call you if you were going to be moved, or to the just bishop. be the bishop? The bishop. Okay. Bishop. So this guy is the guy who calls you if you're going to be moved. Right. Our vicar for clergy, right? Right. And as you can imagine, I see his number. I'm like, oh no, <laughs> oh no. And he's a great guy. He's a very Toss nice guy. Panics. But I I swear he does this on purpose. So he starts off by saying, you know, hey, how you doing? I'm like, hey, Mark. What's going on? Like, I don't want to do small talk. I have no idea what you're saying. And he says, you know, I was talking with the bishop, and he asked me to ask you. And I'm like, oh, no. This is it. I'm being moved. I don't want to be moved, but I'm going to have to say yes because that's what a good priest does. But he says, "Uh, the bishop would like you to be on priest council. And I was like, oh. Oh, okay, yeah, sure, whatever. (laughs) <laughs> Barely having any idea of what priest council is, but I knew right. I wasn't being moved, so it was an easy yes. So basically, priest council is a council of priests that um, kind of offers recommendations and advises the bishop on certain things. There's also some canonical duties or whatever. So I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, sure, why not? I'll do this. It'll be a good experience. Um, and then I got my letter a few weeks afterwards, and I realized I didn't realize what I had signed up for because it's like a whole five-year commitment. I oh, signed up for five every years. Every does it differently. Yeah, I've signed Ours up for is three years. Yeah, um, so five years of meetings, I said yes to. But yeah. whatever, it'll be a good. Experience. Here's the thing: you can always step down. I guess I could, but like I have no reason to right now. Right. All right. Yeah. Um, so I go. Uh, what was it? Just last week. Yeah. And I had, or at the beginning of this week, had the meeting. I said a few things. What I said, I don't think was dumb, and other priests said crazier things. So that made me feel good about myself. And we had the meeting. And it was fine. They even gave us lunch. Yep. How long was it? Oh, uh, let's see. We started at 1130. It was funny because me and another priest who was ordained last year, we show up in the parking lot at 1130 because it says there's going to be lunch. So we assumed like lunch starts at 1130. Uh, and so you, we're walking. You're mistaken. Oh, yeah. We're walking, just chatting because, you know, he's a buddy of mine. And uh, we get to the, the floor where the meeting's being held. And there's like uh, almost 30 people in this meeting and I'm getting nervous because I don't hear anything and we peek into the big meeting room and everyone is there already seated and the bishop is talking mm-hmm. I was like well here we go so we walked in we were late but we were in time because we started off with um, uh, prayer midday prayer midday prayer is what we started with <laughs> and uh, afterwards we grabbed food during some of the beginning discussion and everything yeah. but it was great it was how a good experience. Pre- how many priests are on your priest council? Um, don't quote me on this, but I think like twenty six. Holy smokes! That's yeah, massive. How do you have a discussion with that many people? It works fairly well. Like 
Um, That's crazy. Not huge. everyone comments on everything. You know, right. there were some matters that were brought up that I was like, I don't have anything to add to this. Other ones that I was like, oh, I know something about this. Um, there were also like staff members there. So we've got all of our vicars and we've got kind of mm-hmm. like our curia assigned. Mm-hmm. You've got guys from different age brackets assigned. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the bishop so appointed. So you're the token people. young priest. I am one of the token young priests. I am one of the token young priests. But they do a pretty good job of evening it out among different you know generations mm-hmm. and stuff. But one That's of the things good. they did bring up was like, hey, we've got like uh, how many, like less than 200 priests and we have 26 people on the council. And like years ago when they had 300 priests, they only had 16 priests on the council. So, But the moral of the story is it was a nice experience. I did mm-hmm. not make a complete fool out of myself. And that makes me very happy. And it gets you a chance to get to know other priests in the diocese. Absolutely. Yeah, right. it does. So that's awesome. Nice. And do you guys do what every six weeks ish or something like that? We do every uh, month or every other month. We have a meeting. Every other month, okay. Yeah. So so it was good. Nice. Yeah, we I'm on priest council as well. I started that in September myself. Um, we don't I think in our diocese because of our uh, our, our, our clerical situation um it's are you able-bodied and have a reasonable mind hey you would be <laughs> you'd be a great person for priest council <laughs> exactly um and i'm trying to think here we try i mean not always but they try really hard to make it just guys who are incarnated so that actually i mean like i would say the priest council is two-thirds of our incarnated priests <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing so, but it's good no it is good and um, ours is smaller. We've got one, like I think seven or eight priests on it, but it's good. It's a healthy discussion. Bishop's always there, obviously listening or talking, and um, and the bishop really listens. You know, he's it's his like it's his yeah it's his pastoral council in some ways, right? It's his way of helping to get a pulse of what are things like in the diocese. Yeah, and that's a vibe I got as well. Like there was one mm-hmm. topic we discussed. That it sounded like we were going to vote on it, but then after the discussion, he's like, "Okay, we need to go back to the drawing board on this and work it out a little bit more, and we'll bring it back next time." So mm-hmm. um, it was good. It was a good fraternal discussion. You've mm-hmm. got all kinds of different personalities, and one thing is nice: even the most boring priest gathering, when you get a bunch of priests together, it's kind of fun. It's kind of yeah. fun to see guys and catch up a little bit. What did you guys have for lunch? That's the most important. Oh, lunch. it was awesome. Uh, so the food at our seminary is actually really, really good at our mm-hmm. minor seminary. This is where the meeting was at. So we had pulled pork, mashed potatoes. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was. It was. I'm gonna like, submit my letter for um, to incarnate in your. Diocese. You are welcome, good Father Harrison. But you <laughs> mentioned that uh, so your council is kind of put together. If anybody who's of able mind and able body, our podcast is two priests who are able bodied and relatively able minded. Welcome to clerically speaking. I'm Father Anthony. I'm Father Harrison. Uh, yeah. So just a quick story. Um, I want to say it was two weeks ago now or something like that uh saturday night mass Mm -hmm. i'm just saying mass and i noticed oh we don't get a ton of people at saturday night mass maybe 80 or 90 people so and you you get to know the usual faces sure and i was like oh there's and this person definitely stood out because they're very tall Mm. and uh i'm just sitting there that's what i'm saying mass and everything i'm like oh i'm like oh are you visiting her or what what brings you to town or never deals well yeah i'm actually on on it's a long weekend in the states, and uh, and my wife asked me what I wanted to do for my birthday. And his name's Daniel. Ninety five percent sure it's Daniel. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if it's not, I'm really sorry. But I re- obviously remember this story. Uh, he go- I said, oh, so why did you come to Port Alberni for a holiday? <laughs> yeah. And he said, 
well, Father, my wife asked me what I wanted to do for my birthday, and I said, and I'm from Redmond, Washington, and I wanted to go to Father Harrison's parish. Wow. He is a fan of the podcast. Oh, yay. And a lot of his family is a fan of the podcast. So I gave him some stickers. We had a, I, I, the only thing is I felt bad because I had something afterwards because he was, him and his wife, I guess, were going out for dinner mm-hmm. to the local microbrewery that I always mention that's quite good. And uh, I would have offered to go with them or something like that, take him out for dinner for his birthday. But I had something. I had my staff Christmas party afterwards because I wait till January to do that. Yeah, we're actually because, doing ours today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like it, it's so much more chill. Yeah, yeah, it's, like, it's good. It's a good time to do it. But it was it was great to meet him. I was like, it was just weird. All my first was like, Wait, why did he come here? I said, yeah, they, he likes my podcast. They like for some of them, it's still like does not compute. What is a yeah. podcast, right? What is what is an iPhone? Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it was it was really nice to meet him. Uh, God bless you. Was, thank you for coming all the way out uh, to, to to the parish and. Uh, Hope you enjoyed the rest of your time in Victoria. But yeah, it was, it was neat to meet him. So that was that was a first. Have you had that experience yet of people coming to your parish who listen to the podcast? I have not. Some of my parishioners listen, um, but uh, no one's no one's driven out, which is totally understandable because we live in the hinterlands of Pennsylvania. Right. And like you know, if you go just go to Mass where it's close, I, I don't yeah. think that's you. But that's we, neat. That's neat. Yeah. It but is, the question. It is. I have a question yeah. for you. Okay. 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 So how was your homily though? I'm trying to remember that weekend now. What was the homily? Was it worth it? It, I, I, I wasn't. Did you disappoint this good man on his I birthday? Hope, I really hope not. Um, <laughs> I actually got. A, I'm forgetting what the gospel was that weekend now. Wow, sounds like a I remember what I preached homeless. last. I remember what I preached last week. Oh, it was. Um, it was. I was preaching on. It was um, the universal call to holiness. I was preaching on the second reading. I've been really kind of digging the second readings lately because it's Paul and Corinthians and it's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he was talking about in the the opening of his letter is about this calling to be sanctified. So I preached on the universal call to holiness. And kind of off the cuff because, you know, January was supposed to be quieter. (laughs) But, no, well, it kind of is. But, 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 I'm also my own worst enemy. Yeah. Because... I'm not very good at writing things way ahead of time that I need to write. Mm-hmm. I'm very last minute with this. So I've been writing a lot this month, and I have more writing to do in the next two weeks. I have four more classes to prep. I have three talks to prep for Australia. And um, another. The- I'm doing Theology of the Body for Young Adults, which has been really fun. Uh, but I got a lot of writing to do. Uh, yeah, man, <laughs> like last that's week, a lot. <laughs> I, wrote, I, wrote, I think I wrote 15,000 words last week. Woo! Wow. Well, so, yeah. Father Harrison, let's let other people do the writing, and let's read what they've written on Twitter in the Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. I'll give it a B B plus. Yeah. Because okay. the real idea is to go with the first tweet. 
Yeah, I was gonna. I was looking at the first tweet, but I was like, nope, this is easier. Let's go okay. for it. All right, that works. This that is works. from this is from Carl at C. You are Catholic, and this is basically go- going to be me bragging about my goddaughter because Carl's a good friend of mine. This is yeah. a story about his daughter, who is my goddaughter. So I take all the credit for her sanctity and piety. So Carl tweets this: six-year-old excited, daddy, a miracle happened last night. Me, what's that, honey? The six-year-old. I was in my bed feeling scared, so I grabbed my scapular and prayed, and I felt amazing and went to sleep. Heart emoji, heart emoji, heart emoji. Yeah. So the story behind this, I don't know if I, I don't care. I don't care if you, I told you. You talked before. about it last time. You talked about it. I don't care. Over. I'm still bragging about it because it's okay, amazing. Fine. It makes me happy. <laughs> fine. <laughs> the short Be version, happy. The short version is that I uh, uh, invested um, my goddaughter and um, the uh, – uh, his other daughter, who I baptized, and his wife, I invested them in the scapular and everything. And little, the little girl was like super, super excited. So to hear this like little little miracle of grace for a six-year-old warmed mm-hmm. my heart. Also to brag, they just had career day at their Catholic school. I was just going to say, yeah. Yeah, they had career day at the Catholic school, and she wanted to be a nun for— not, What kind of nun? Well, here's the thing. So they, you know— you know the the parents are trying to figure out like we don't have like nun costumes. What should we do? Okay, missionaries of charity are pretty easy nun outfit to do. Yeah. But then she goes, no, I want to be a little sister of the poor, which is one of our only habited um, religious in our diocese. Mm-hmm. So sure enough, she dressed up as a little sister of the poor. Looks super super cute and, and super, she looks super so happy. She's so happy <laughs> to be a nun. It's so beautiful. It's and really adorable. <laughs> It's like I'm sure like that's gotta feel great for them as parents, but it's also like it shows you a how quickly kids internalize the faith when it's mm-hmm. lived as a way of life at home, absolutely, and how it builds up their desire. And I mean, then they become teenagers, and we see where things lie. But, sure, sure. <laughs> but these are encouraging, and it's it's also in a way it shows you that whatever whatever parents like kind of form their kids in, yeah, in a way the kids not only just like giving it back, but in a way they. But how they internalize it and then speak of it to their parents forms the parents too. Absolutely, because right? yeah. they see how the kid takes us in, and it, and then the way they speak of it with such joy, that builds up the parents' faith. And so it's like this reciprocal relationship of formation that happens in the life of a family, which is really beautiful. Yeah, I, 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 I think I think with both those tweets that he put out with that, I kind of put the the cry emoji with it because it's really beautiful. Like it really <laughs> is. It's like, oh no, that picture of her is like, I was like, wow, she looks not just happy, like like. A real interior joy. Yeah, yeah. Like, this is not just a fanciful, I want to do this one day. This is like her heart's desire. Yeah, yeah. And it's beautiful to see. And also, you know, she's an ordinary kid. On the mm-hmm. way to school, she wanted to listen to the Kanye album uh, and the uh, Spider-Verse soundtrack. So, like, um, she's she's great. She's great. And then they're a great family. And there, I'm good. I'm done bragging. Uh, we'll, we'll go with J.D. Flynn's here. Liturgical hot take of the day. Ad Orientum worship is the antidote to clericalism. So ad orientum, if you haven't been listening to the podcast, is when the priests and the people face the same direction in the mass. Yes. And I am 100% in agreement with him. I do think... Because what... I mean, I think the way, like, quote-unquote versus populum has... What it's done in the church is that it's clericalized both the people and the priest. Mm, Go on. Well, then it's seen as like this priest is doing this thing for the people only. 
mm-hmm. instead of it being an act. Because like, with the whole point of ad orientans, this, this is an act of the whole church, of which the priest plays a particular role in, absolutely. And not just like the church, the parish, but I mean like the church, the universal church. The whole church is present in every mass. And so it's the, the priest is acting out this role on behalf of everyone, but it's really an act of the whole church. And so if actually, in some ways, I would say ad orientum lives up the teaching of Lumen Gentium about what the church is in a very vital way. This idea we're all going towards the Lord together. And I always say to people with this too, it's like, like just as a practical thing around ad orientum, I'm like, well, what if I, what if I celebrated adoration like I celebrated mass? People say, well, that's crazy. I say, well, why? And yeah. they say, because you're not facing Jesus. And I said, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so why does that differ with the mass? Right. But I think, because what happens is now, and I think this is a great sadness, we've put on this performative sense towards the priest, and we start saying, well, Father says Mass this way, or he does this, or he has this tones or whatever in his voice, so I'm going to go to this parish because this priest is here. But if every priest was kind of celebrating Mass as we ought to in the book, but also facing the same direction where people aren't looking at us all the time, I think it'd be better. Also, like, because it's, it's like, it's, um, like, I have a sense. I've, I've always wanted to take a survey with this. When we say, um, oh my gosh, there's, here, you, you comment. I have, I have, I, I need to down and go through the parts of the mass in my head while you talk. Yeah, I think it's also, it's easier on the priest as well, because that performative aspect, you know, we, we work through signs and symbols. Right. And our culture is very acquainted with audience stage or audience screen. Um, and so when the church is set up in a way that's similar to an audience screen or audience stage thing, it leans into that, oh, this is something we're going to watch, not something we're going to do. Exactly. Uh, this is something we're going to see or uh, have it be done for us instead of this is something we are doing together. And the priest can feel that as well. So I suspect a lot of reasons why either priests make off-the-cuff bad jokes or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, it's because it almost feels like they have to perform because yeah. they see the audience before them. But honestly, the few times I've done at Orientum worship, it's just so much easier to pray, right? Absolutely. So as a priest, just... it's way easier to pray. It's actually right. more prayerful. Like, mm-hmm. think it's just like, I feel like it's an act of sacrifice and worship more. Yeah, exactly. And people will pick up on that. Because like, oh, the priest is is praying up there. He's not just saying words so that we can hear them. It's important for the people to hear hear the words. That's why we say them out loud, right? But this is a, like, mass should be something different than the ordinary. And this is one of the ways it can, like, shift our minds. Like, no, 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 this isn't. This isn't what we, you know, do every day, unless you go to mass every day, and that's wonderful. Right. But this is something different. This is something special. This is something holy, and it's it's a small thing, but the implications of that symbolic difference will really, really changes the whole experience of worship. Yeah. Did you figure um, out what you're going to say? I did. I did. Um, at the end of the Our Father, when a priest pays his part, and then the people respond, "For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever." Twenty bucks says. If you surveyed your par- parish, 75% of people would say that, that that phrase, the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours forever and ever, they would probably say it's addressed to the priest. Oh, that would be terrifying. And it's not. Obviously, it's not. Yeah. But <laughs> I bet you anything, I, because of the orientation, Yeah. Um, the people, 
like I even see people sometimes they'll kind of gesture their hands towards me as I, as they're saying it. I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> and it's not my power, not my glory, not my kingdom. It's God's, right? right? But if they don't see me, if because not again, it's like I just I'm so tired of the back facing the people thing. It has nothing to do with that. If you're standing in line, you're, you're the person's not the person doesn't have their back towards you. You're all in line together to get into the same place. Mm-hmm. Like we got to get away from this weird and like why are, I. I because uh, yeah, it's just let, let's let's just go back, please, please. Yes, and like the one thing that really hits me is very often the Gloria, because this is beautiful hymn about singing glory to God, and we're just staring at each other saying it, mm-hmm. and it just feels really awkward. Imagine you know? if we were all facing the same direction doing that, right? It and then just like the facing the tabernacle or whatever. Yeah, it's like yeah, I'm actually looking at the Lord as I'm saying this prayer. Mm-hmm. Instead, it's where do I look while people are singing? Yeah. Like, I'm just going to look at, going to keep my head down. I was saying this to someone else the other day too. Like I find the one place where my personality comes out in mass, the only place really is during the homily. Sure. Right. Like it's a, it's, it's a liturgical act, but it's also an act of the priest and it's in its particularity mm-hmm. then while the rest of the mass, I'm like, I, I turn off my personality as best I can because this is not my action. It's Christ's action through me. And yeah. You know, anyways, yeah, we can. People know how we feel about all this, but we can go on about this a lot. So let's keep the unstoppable tradning going with this tweet from Jake at Jake of Online. And he says, If there is one thing that will turn me rad trad, it's EMs and communion in the hand. So rad trad is our fun online phrase for people who are radically traditional, right? Mm -hmm. And um, EMs for Eucharistic minister. Okay, so. This is in no way to offend anyone who is a Eucharistic minister because you're the church has asked for your help. You have said yes. And they're legitimate in the life of the church. They are legitimate. They are allowed in the life of the church. But I think there's something to be said for the fact that, um, once again, signs and symbols mean things. So when you have the idea that the priest can hold the host is because the priest's hands were consecrated on the day of his ordination. That what he that is what he was ordained for. He was ordained for the Eucharist, and so that the graces of God can flow through his hands to the people in service. Okay, but you lose a little bit of that when you have a bunch of ordinary laity distributing communion. And what's more is that you're doing this out of convenience, right? Because if there was just ordinary ministers, meaning priests, deacons, and instituted acolytes, which no parish has, um. It becomes like, let's just make sure we get this moving along. And now I don't think mass should be dragged on unnecessarily, but sometimes I think we go above and beyond to make mass convenient. Mm-hmm. Because when we when the when the whole idea is making mass more convenient for people, the mass becomes more about us than it does about God. So I think there's right. you're missing some of the sign and symbol of what the Eucharist is and how precious and holy it is. Not that lay people aren't holy, they are. They're the holy people of God. They are um, a royal priesthood. But the priesthood of uh, the ministerial priesthood is different um, as the documents of Vatican II say, not just in what they say, not just in not degree, just, but in kind. Yes, not just in degree, but it's a different kind of priesthood related to the ordinary priesthood, but different in kind. And I think it's you minis- lose some. It's a of ministerial that. priesthood. Right, no, exactly. And heaven forbid your Eucharistic ministers aren't trained, they can do all kinds of goofy things as well. And sometimes yeah. that unfortunately happens as well. Yeah. Um, now, okay, first, 
some people say like, you know, yes, toast drops sometimes. And now first, just as a little preamble, that even happens when you receive on the tongue too sometimes. Someone's tongue's dry or whatever. So it, that's not your real reason. But yeah, I am in a kind of agreement with, with Jake. I think, and I, here's the thing. Actually, I think like something like Eucharistic ministers would make, if you, like, let's say you had a communion rail, okay? Yeah. You have a priest on one side and one Eucharistic minister on the other side doing it. But, you know, they have to be dressed up, like not in jeans and a t-shirt or anything like that. And, like, there's a sense of, like, well, this is my other thing. I still don't understand if, if acolytes are allowed in the church, why aren't we instituting them for parishes? Like, that's something that's boggled my mind because it's not now, just the steps of priesthood. Right. Well, that's it, something that's happened in the Diocese of Galveston, Houston. Mm-hmm. Um, Cardinal Donardo Institute like 300 acolytes because um, they, they can also purify yep. they can also purify vessels right like mm-hmm. these you know but they have to be instituted on, on the life of the church so anyways that's my big thing because if that's the case then every parish could have institute acolytes who this is their role and duty and they know what to do and they're trained well in it and they're um, but I and then receiving on the tongue because like I agree like the more I do on the hand the more it just breaks my heart Say more about that. People don't know what they're receiving. Yeah. Sometimes. 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 Not, not all the time. I mean, yeah. I'm not saying every person who receives on the hand. Like nor am I saying you're a bad person if you receive on the hand. I'm just saying no. that a lot of people who do have lost the meaning of what it is, what the Eucharist is. You know, I it doesn't happen often. I've seen it a couple times where people will like, they'll do this with their hands oh no for it with the particles no right one thing i've done in my parish just to help and it and it works too not all the time for catching but i've reinstituted the patents at communion time mm-hmm. so there's a there's a patent a little gold plate that goes yeah. underneath yeah and, um, so and they make all the drops. servers it gives also mm-hmm. gives the boys something to do yeah right they like stuff to do so uh, but um this whole i i agree with with jake i think these are things we really need to reevaluate. And yes, there'd probably be a lot of kicking and screaming initially. Uh, but um, I think pe- if you I teach think people, people... Would, I think if you teach people, yeah. they would come around because yeah. like a lot of people who are older, they have memories of this. And, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I, I I'm in agreement. I mean, like imagine adorantum and receiving on the tongue. Imagine if every parish did that. I, I think, think you would see I a would, difference. I think you'd see a difference, and that's yeah. it. Like that's all. Like those are two massive moves, and all, and you see a difference, right? Um, yeah, that that the church is this is a place of worship, and that we're receiving our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yep. Okay. What do you got? Uh, all right. Uh, from uh, Christine Roussel. Uh, it's uh, it's cool. So she was at the March for Life. It's a cool. A president speaking at the March for Life, but logistically, this is a nightmare. This is where. It's important to talk about. Strollers are banned for security reasons. Strollers at the March for Life rally, as are backpacks and large bags. Um, And that is... uh, Oh, and also food was apparently banned. So you're at a pro-life rally, and things you need for life, like food, or for babies, (laughs) strollers, or backpacks, like... That doesn't seem to make any sense to me whatsoever. Like logistically, that seems like it, it is like an anti-sign to what the march is all about. 
Yeah, man, it's a tough situation. And to be honest, I don't want to get too much into it just because yeah. I don't feel like it. Well, I'm not. Um, yeah, this isn't a comment on right what what why all the security stuff was there. It's just more like it is. But it, I'm just talking about like the fact. Yes, I think she's pointing out to something though about like strollers. Really? Mm-hmm. That a march for well, life. This is, this is why we've known what the march for life is supposed to be anyway. Mm-hmm. Most of the people there are Catholics. We have our other Christian brothers and sisters, and even some atheists who just understand right. what science is, right. um, and have some degree of you know morality about stuff. You've got a lot of people there, but I really feel like you know the bishop of D.C. like have a march for life. That's a big old Eucharistic procession hmm. where instead of like goofy signs and silly chants, we can be singing hymns that we can. Um, be processing liturgically with um, our Lord and the Blessed Sacrament. All strollers are welcome. You can munch on food along the way because you've got family and kids need snacks and whatever else it takes. Just do that. I think that would be a more prayerful experience and a more powerful experience, uh, witness to life. Like, let's just do it the way we can do it. Like, yeah, you can still have the big march, um, political movements and stuff that's important in the life of um, civil society, sure. But let's just do our own as well. That's what I want to see. I, I kind of agree. I mean... Nothing says life like bringing our Eucharistic Lord into the heart of the swamp and yeah. to say, come go. to life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so now it's time for something I'm really excited about, Presbyteral Exhortation. No, no it's not. It's not. It's the, the index. index. That's why I was excited. I'm excited because it's time to go back to the index. Oh, no. It's finally here. The index! Not my books! Not my books! When the index comes to town, we take your books and we burn them! Okay, so we're going to be talking about Flannery O'Connor's story, Parker's Back. It's a short story. It's about 20 pages long. You can probably find it pretty easily. So if you want to put the podcast down and read that 20 pages, that might be helpful. But even if you don't, I think we can talk about it in a way that makes the whole subject approachable. But I want to begin with Flannery's own comments about the idea of the index. Mm -hmm. So the index used to be this list of books Um, that were kind of banned by the church. You could still read them, but you would need permission to read them. So you need permission from a spiritual director or a priest who had that authority, and then you could read them. And Flannery O'Connor, she's a writer. And she was a writer when the index was still going on, I think. And uh, so the question would be, like, how can you be Catholic and feel free to be a writer And with something like the index? And Flannery says this, The business of protecting souls from dangerous literature belongs properly to the church. All fiction, even when it satisfies the requirements of art, will not turn out to be suitable for everyone's consumption. And if, in some instance, the church sees fit to forbid the faithful to read a work without permission, the author, if he's Catholic, will be thankful that the church is willing to perform this service for him. It means he can limit himself to the demands of art. So what Flannery is saying here is that a writer can just write and write with regards to the demands of art, of the craft itself. And the writer doesn't have to worry about souls 
because the church is going to worry about that for him or for her. So she sees it as a service. You're free to write, and the church can say whether or not people can read it. So Flannery O'Connor, my girl, was all about the index. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and this is a big deal because apparently Bishop Barron has been saying he wants to have a kind of index for different uh, Catholic social media accounts and stuff, which I am all for. I... Bishop Barron is the sheriff of Catholic Twitter. He's the sheriff of news websites. Thank you, I'm sheriff. I'm for this. Thank you, sheriff. Thank you, sheriff Barron. Um, but okay, so have I told the podcast people about how I became a um, uh, an English major in college? I don't. You've you've hinted at this, I think. Right. So the answer is the reason why I became a literature major in college is because of my pride. So I entered a seminary right out of high school so I was in college seminary and you have to do philosophy so I majored in philosophy but of course you've got all these like core classes so I was taking the English lit class and we're having a discussion about something and then the professor was like hey um, are you uh, an English lit major I'm like no I have to be a philosophy major for seminary and she was like you know that's a shame because you would make a really good English lit major and I was like, well, okay. In that case, I'll double major. Okay. There you go. So this is what began my uh, journey with uh, Flannery because one of her short stories is often read in different anal- uh, anal- analogies. No. Anthologies? What's Anthologies. Thank you. And you, you, would, you would make a great English lit uh, major. It's funny because I'm terrible <laughs> at spelling and grammar. I'm just good at reading stories. That's all it is. Um, so the story that you will probably be familiar with is The Misfit. And I remember reading it. I had no idea who Flannery O'Connor was. And you read this story, and I'm like, wow, that was both terrible, but I think I loved it, and I don't know why. And Flannery O'Connor's short stories have always been like eating sour Skittles for me. Mm-hmm. Like, you eat one, and you're like, oh, that tastes weird, but I'm going to have another. And that was my experience mm-hmm. reading her stories. I was more and more fascinated with her. And we had a whole discussion about The Misfit, and I still knew nothing about Flannery O'Connor. And then I started learning more about her, and it said that she was Catholic. And I was like, oh, well, that's neat. Then I found out she's, like, really Catholic. Yeah. She, like, was reading Thomas Aquinas before going to bed every night kind of Catholic. Yeah. And this, like, really breaks open Flannery O'Connor's stories. Because her stories really all end up being about grace. But we'll talk about that later. Um, Father Harrison, what's your experience with Flannery O'Connor? Have you read much of her? What's I've read some period pieces. Um mm-hmm. I'm presuming you're citing out of the collected works. Yes, yes. I've got this big old like, book of collected works. You said page 673. I'm like, oh, good. I got the collected works as well. Um, Yay! So, so book buddies. I will. I've read like um, I've read Wise Blood. I've read A Good Man Is Hard to Find. I've read The Violent Fared Away, mm-hmm. and I've read a lot of her bits and pieces from her letters. And I have not read a lot of her short stories. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not the best at reading literature sure i i've just it's a weakness of mine that i recognize i need to grow in um, get trying to get better at that but uh, i have and i i found her her kind of um southern gothic style and violence very interesting and i find her uh sacramental worldview absolutely like her that she finds like like that she finds grace everywhere Mm-hmm. is really interesting to me and I've oh, yeah I've always found her a fascinating character so yes and really smart absolutely she's she's 
brilliant. Yeah. So I think her short stories are um, better than her novels because I think her because of her style, reading a whole novel from her can be kind of brutal in a way. Mm. Uh, they can be tough to get through with that style um, for some people. Um, but even if you don't like her style of um, fiction, her prose is fascinating. Her letters that she's written, um, her little essays on writing, um, those are much more approachable, and they're full of power and wit and brilliance. So if you've been turned off by her stories, I would still suggest you read her letters because you find out a lot about her personality. Mm-hmm. And I especially love her sense of humor. Oh, yeah. She's got um, a great sense of humor. She does, yeah, like, she's she's, really she does some really interesting things, like some really interesting and good way things to say about the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. Right? So, yeah, she's uh, awesome. Okay. But there are critiques about Flannery. So a lot of people read her stories and they feel like these are confusing. Like, what just happened? What did I read? Everything ended up sad, right? There's, um, She writes a lot in a grotesque sort of style. There'll be people, um, there'll be uh, freaks, violence. Um, so a lot of people are turned off by that. It can feel impious yeah. when you're reading some of the stuff she's writing. And the, the most interesting critique I found is that is Flannery O'Connor a closet Calvinist? Interesting. Meaning, does she see grace as irresistible? Interesting. So the um, short Sparknotes version of a Calvinist idea of grace is that grace is irresistible. If God has chosen you for salvation, that's it. You can't get out of it. Right. And if you read some of her stories, it can appear like that's her view of grace. Right. Because but... people are kicking and screaming the entire time fighting against grace go ahead I, I would say though her her view her the idea of the irresistibility of grace for her is not um okay i'm gonna get very philosophical here it's not an ontological yeah, view it's an aesthetic view mm. can you expand that so it's not in the order of being and like in the order of like god like imposing his grace on you but it's this idea that the beauty of god's grace is so overwhelmingly persuasive that no human being once they actually encounter it could legitimately say no which is, I think, a very healthy and free way of looking at the relationship between nature and grace and stuff like that. Like, she, she really gets that. But it's an aesthetic yeah. thing because she's a writer. She's yes. an artist. Um, so I think it's an aesthetic thing, not an ontological thing. Yeah, I agree. So, like, my response to those critiques is that um, her whole thing is that as a writer of literature, um, she writes about what is. She writes about reality. And there's certain laws in um, in fiction mm-hmm. that you can't kind of like. So even if you create like a fantasy world, which she does not, it still has to obey the certain laws of that universe. Mm-hmm. She writes more realistic fiction, so she has to write about how things are. And the way things are is the world and us ourselves, we are fallen and ugly. But also with that is that God was willing to die for this fallen and ugly world. And so the grace in the stories come across as really shocking because that's often how grace looks like in a fallen, broken, ugly world. So that's the tension. And I believe, like you said, for her, grace isn't irresistible, but it is relentless. It is powerful. It is terrible in the biblical sense. Mm -hmm. And the violence in that grace comes from the fact that grace is both something that we deeply desire and it's something we run away from, Mm -hmm. right? We want to be holy, but we also want to really cling to our sin. And so when God's love explodes into our life, the pain and the ugliness is in us wanting to be torn away from sin, but also wanting to cling to it. Like You see this in Augustine's um, confessions, this like battle within ourselves. 
Um, and so we experience God's grace sometimes as a kind of violence. Mm-hmm. But the violence isn't from God's grace. It's from our All God is our showing us. Exactly. It's our sinfulness. So I think that's a better way of understanding. Yeah. It's the dichotomy in ourselves, not grace itself. Also, what you said about uh, Flannery seeing grace everywhere, that's Catholic mm-hmm. because God works through the ordinary. And he's not even afraid to work through things that we think are ugly. Right. He's not afraid to work through Protestants. He's not <laughs> afraid to work through uh, people who are disabled or different than us. Right. He's not afraid to work through people who don't have exactly the right theological ideas. God will work through everything to bring us to his love. Can I ask a question? Please. Because um, one of the things that one notices when they read Flannery, oh, sorry, two questions. First, have you ever read Bernanus's Diary of a Country Priest? I have not. Okay, we're going to do that for an index one day. We have to. Okay. It's very good. Anyways, okay. Um, but one thing I've noticed about Flannery is she doesn't, I, for her being so Catholic, she never talks about Catholics in her stories. No. Right? They're always like strict Bible preachers and stuff like this, right? So I've always mm-hmm. wondered, like, it's very interesting, like, this dichotomy between a very strict Protestantism that would have a very strict view of grace and then infusing that worldview with the Catholic view of grace. Like, it's it's different. And yeah, it's not something one would be used to. Is this, like, an apologetic for her, Protestants? Or is this... Um, her trying to show how grace really works so that it works even through things like that might not be in full communion with Christ's church or and stuff like that. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. Okay. I think on a basic level, she grew up in the South. Mm-hmm. So this is the culture she's familiar with. Mm-hmm. And so these are the images she's using. Like she's used to seeing revivals and preachers and stuff. And she does, like you can see, there is a respect for some of that stuff. Um and so she's not afraid to use those kind of images to get across a Catholic idea of grace. Is it an apologetic? Um, I think it's an apologetic in the sense that uh, Flaherty was very aware that America was a nation that was asleep. And if someone's asleep, you got to shake them awake with really striking images. Yeah. Like that's a lot of the reason why her <laughs> stories are so shocking. She wants to wake you up to the reality of grace or the reality of baptism. Um, so it's a little bit of both. Okay. If that makes yeah, sense. Okay. Um, but I don't think she's writing specifically to convert people. I right. think she's writing because she's a writer. Right. No, no, no. That I would agree with. Yeah. There. I just like secondary intentions. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, some of that's there. Um, okay. So let's talk about Parker's back. So uh, just in general, this is what the story is about. I think it's a brutally honest conversion story and a conversion that's also a return to oneself. That conversion isn't always about becoming someone new. It's becoming somebody you were called to be from the very beginning. So that's the idea of God's mm-hmm. providence. So how the story goes is this guy named uh, O.E. Parker. His full name is Obadiah Elihu, but he doesn't like using his full name. And he's basically a scoundrel and a womanizer. At a young age, he experiences a kind of mystical experience. He wouldn't call it that. But he's basically at a, a circus or something. And he sees uh, basically a bodybuilder covered with tattoos. And this is his experience. Uh, it says, quote, Until he saw the man at the fair, it did not enter his head that there was anything out of the ordinary about the fact that he existed. Mm-hmm. Even then, it did not enter it into his head, but a peculiar unease settled in him. It was as if a blind boy had been so turned gently in a different direction that he did not know his destination changed. Mm-hmm. 
So something about him seeing a body covered in tattoos has changed him in a way that he's not even fully able to explain. So this happens when he's like six years old. Um, he wants to get a tattoo. He gets one. And his experience with getting tattoos is that he always desires something colorful. That's the point of the tattoos. He wants something with color on his body. And he's always kind of unsatisfied by the tattoo he gets. And he desires to get more. He works to make money simply so that he can buy more tattoos. That's his reason for existing. And he um, is kind of running around, womanizing, getting tattoos. His mother is just ashamed of this. So she brings him to a revival. And he's freaked out by the revival. And he goes and joins the Navy. So he spends his life getting tattoos, womanizing, moving around you know, the world. But then something happens. He meets somebody. Who is this somebody? Sarah. And she is like your most <clears throat> vanilla, strict, cold, Protestant caricature you could ever meet. Mm-hmm. Right? And something's different about him meeting this woman. This is the only woman that like challenges him, that both calls him out on the way he's been living, is not a fan of his tattoos, but kind of tolerates him anyway. And it's fascinating because it's not the kind of woman that he would like. He doesn't think that she's pretty at all. She, he kind of hates her, but he also ends up marrying her. This is a common theme for protagonists in Flannery's stories. They get together with people they actually don't want to. Yeah. So the question is why? Why does he do it, right. Harrison? I I was just reading it like just before we were podcasting because that was a question I was asking myself. I haven't come to an answer on yet. Okay. So I think yeah. it's because this is his first kind of experience with the gospel. That thing that he was running away from mm-hmm. from his childhood, the thing he ran away from the revival, he sees it in her, but it's a little bit more approachable because he's kind of a ladies' man. And so he, he's drawn to grace, but also repulsed by it. Mm-hmm. And it's not perfect, but it's a step forward. Mm-hmm. And that's why he ends up being attracted to her, really despite himself. Okay. And by all accounts, he's a terrible husband. Yeah. He does not like his wife. He, he works for an old lady at her farm. Yeah. And he tells his wife that the old lady is actually a very attractive woman. A hefty blonde. And that's why he's working. A hefty blonde. That's what he likes. Um, but it's it's a complete and utter lie. Okay. So uh, by this point, his whole body is covered in tattoos. And the one area he doesn't have a tattoo is on his back because he can't see his back. Mm-hmm. So why get a tattoo there? He likes looking at his tattoos. He also hates looking at his tattoos because they're not what he wants them to be. They're, they don't give him the same mystical experience he first when he first saw a man covered in tattoos. Mm-hmm. But he figures, maybe if I get something religious on my back, then my wife will settle down. So he's been kind of thinking about this. And one day when he's at work, he's on the tractor, and he's cutting grass, basically. And in this field, there's a big tree in the middle of this field. And the woman uh, who he works for keeps the tree there because it says in the story, she's the kind of woman that would keep a tree there simply because it was old. And I think that's a neat little detail that like points to a kind of Catholicism, a basic Catholicism mm-hmm. where like, this is old, this is traditional, therefore it's important. I'm not going to remove it. Mm-hmm. But anyway, he begins circling around the tree, cutting grass and thinking about getting some kind of tattoo. And he thinks about getting a Bible verse, mm-hmm. but like she already has a Bible. So why just get one verse? She's already read it a bunch of times. Can't figure it out. And then all of a sudden, uh, I actually want to read the part 
Oh, yes. Okay. The sun, the size of a golf ball, began to switch regularly from in front to behind him. So he's going in a circle. But he appeared to see it both places as if he had eyes in the back of his head. So there's this feeling of something watching him. All at once, he saw the tree reaching out to grasp him. A ferocious thrud propelled him into the air, and he heard himself yelling in an unbelievably loud voice, God above. And so basically he crashes into this tree. He yells at God above. The tractor hits the tree and explodes in flame, and his shoes fall off. So Harrison, (laughs) his shoes fall off. There's a tree in flames. He says, oh, God above. This is a pretty obvious um, allusion to what? Exodus and and Moses and... uh... And at Mount at, at the Mount where at Mount Horeb, right? Was, exactly, yeah. right? So this is like oh, this is his like first kind of. It's a deeper. It's another conversion experience for him. So he sees this tree that reached out and grabbed him. It's exploding in flames. He's almost pious in spite of himself in the sight of this. His shoes are off, and he yelled a curse. But ironically, it's kind of an accurate praise as well. Mm-hmm. God above. Mm-hmm. And it's from that moment on that he's like, I need to get this tattoo on my back. And he begins to kind of lose his mind about this. And he runs. Basically, he freaks out. He gets out of there and goes to the tattoo artist. And he wants to get a picture of God on his back. And he doesn't even know what he's asking for. He's like, uh, the, the tattoo artist asks him, like, what do you want? Like, Father, Son, Holy Spirit? And he's like, I don't care. Just give me God. Guy's like, okay. He pulls out this book with all these images of Jesus on it. And it's and the, the, the scene where he's flipping through those images is really fascinating. Parker sat down with the book and, a, and wet his thumb. He began to go through it, beginning at the back where up-to-date pictures were. Some of them he recognized. The Good Shepherd, Forbid Them Not, The Smiling Jesus, Jesus the Physician's Friend. But he kept turning rapidly backwards, and the pictures became less and less reassuring. One showed a gaunt green dead face streaked with blood. One was yellow with sagging purple eyes. Parker's heart began to beat faster and faster until it appeared to be roaring inside of him like a great generator. He flipped the pages quickly, feeling that when he reached the one ordained, a sign would come. He continued to flip through until he had almost reached the front of the book. On one of the pages, a pair of eyes glanced at him swiftly. Parker sped on, then stopped. His heart, too, appeared to cut off. There was absolute silence. It said as plainly as if silence were a language in itself, go back. Parker returned to the picture, the haloed head of a flat, stern, Byzantine Christ with all demanding eyes. He sat there trembling. His heart began slowly to beat again, as if it were being brought to life by a subtle power. So he goes through all these images of Jesus. And a lot of ones, like, if you heard those names, you're used to it, the smiling Jesus, that sort of thing. And as he goes back, it's almost like he's going back in history of iconography. The pictures get less and less reassuring and more and more startling. And then he gets this picture of this Byzantine icon of Christ. And what grasps him is the all-demanding eyes of this image. And what's amazing is uh, there's a comparison between the all-demanding eyes of this image and the kind of cold and piercing eyes of his wife. And they compare the two. So it's like almost as if the eyes of this one kind of Christianity, they're cold, they're piercing, they're accusing, but the eyes of this deeper Christianity, of Christ himself, 
demands everything from Parker, and that's what he knows he needs to get. And he immediately buys the tattoo, and he can't finish it all in one day. And so the artist did a good job but didn't finish the eyes. And Parker's really upset by this. Like, it needs the eyes. The eyes need to be in there. But he also hates the tattoo and doesn't want to look at it. He goes back the next day, gets the tattoo finished. He goes to a bar. He starts drinking. So you really see here, like, the, the tension that's in him. Christ has demanded everything from him, but he's not ready to let go. But he doesn't want to say no either. So he drowns himself in alcohol. Everyone keeps asking him, what's the deal? Have you been saved? You've got a big old image of Jesus on your back. What's the deal? And he hates it, and he freaks out. Like, no, I haven't been saved. It's for my wife. It's for whatever. Finally, he goes back to the house, and the door is locked, and he can't get in. So his wife won't let him in and keeps saying things like, I don't know who you are. He keeps saying, it's, it's me. It's O.E. It's O.E. Parker. And one part of the story is that he doesn't like telling people his real name. He likes using his initials. And if you look at the name, Obadiah Elihu, that's a, that's a good old-fashioned Old Testament name. Mm-hmm. That he's kind of afraid of his past. He's kind of afraid what he's always been ordained to be, which is a real Christian. And he keeps saying, I'm O.E. And his wife's saying, I don't know who you are. Who are you outside that door? And there's, like, using his wife kind of being, kind of being bitter and petty in this moment as a sign that God's calling him back to who he's supposed to be. So, can I break in with something here? Please, please um, do. Yeah, yeah. So, there's a few things that are said throughout the story that I think can all be tied together, too. Like, um, it says that she is, um, she's like kind of something like a pure gospel believer, and her dad's out yeah. in Florida for something with this, and um, that she doesn't, yeah, and she doesn't even, she doesn't even believe in churches, right? They get married in front of a justice of the peace. They, yeah. She thinks it's like that's idolatry to even have mm-hmm. a church building. And I wonder if, in a way, there's a few things going on with this kind of tattoo on the back. Yeah. In one way, it's a confront. It's God confronting that kind of strict iconoclasm with his this moment of grace in him in this twist it's a like it's a twisting of a grace for him in a way he's doing this for his wife or whatever <clears throat> but it's also like this confrontation right like you said this comparison between the eyes of the wife and the eyes of the Byzantine Christ so yeah. it, is it also a provocation <laughs> is it an attempt to be in a pro- on his part to be a provocation against his wife whose whose stare he's both attracted to and can't stand yeah. right but like I see in this like a kind of like a a critique of iconoclasm and it kind of bears out in the image like through the characters why a kind of this strict like she keeps on talking even about the judgment what's got what's going to happen you get in front of christ and he sees you and he sees this yeah. right and then it's like through the icon christ sees her and it terrifies her yeah so we'll get to okay. that part in a yeah. second but i don't think it's just iconoclasm okay. i think this is the deeper understanding of grace. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, the absolutely, tattoos, yeah. The tattoos are all about the incarnation. Yeah. The word made flesh on Parker's back. And the the thing which is so striking about the image and the tattoo is the whole point that Christ became human. Right. Christ became incarnate. And because of that, because he has given us everything, there's also a demand for everything. Mm-hmm. So Christianity isn't just a set of doctrines. It's not a bunch of principles. It's about Christ himself. 
And that is radical and powerful and challenges even other Christian notions that some people have. It challenges all the notions that he has because Christ is real and he sees you. And it's not the same accusatory stare that his wife gives him. It's not the same judgmental stare. It's something more powerful. It's it's a look of love coming from a God who loves you. And that would it, that is what is startling and striking. Yeah. So he's trying to get in the house. She won't let him in. But like there's this moment where she asks, who are you? Mm-hmm. And he turns around as if to find an answer from somewhere behind him because he's just so flustered. And it's in the morning and the light just kind of dawns above the horizon. And it's it, it says like the light almost pins him against the door. And this is like one of the other moments of grace for him that it, all of a sudden, like God is like, you know who you are. And he kind of whispers very quietly his name, Obadiah. And she lets him in. Now, she's just, like, chiding him and stuff mm-hmm. for, like, blowing up the tractor, going out, getting drunk. And he's just, like, trying to take off his shirt. And she's like, you're not having none of me. It's it's the morning. like, And she's already pregnant and everything. She's like, no, 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 no. I want you to just look at him. Look at him. Look at my back. And this, this experience is fascinating. It's what you were just mm-hmm. alluding to. He says, shut my mouth. Look at this. I don't want to hear no more out of you. And she just says... Another picture. I might have known you was off putting some more trash on yourself. And Parker says, look at it. Don't just say that. Look at it. I done look, she said. Do you know who it is? No. Who is it? It ain't anybody. It ain't anybody I know. It's him, Parker said. Him who? God, Parker cried. God? God don't look like that. What do you know how he looks? You ain't even seen him. He don't look. He's a spirit. No man shall see his face. Mm -hmm. So this is when it's like revealed what she really believes. Yeah. This whole thing about like when God looks at you, he's like, no, no, he doesn't actually look. God forever for her is an abstraction. Exactly. And for him, God is something more than an abstraction. God is the word made flesh Mm -hmm. on his freaking back. Literally made flesh. This is the really, really cool part. In his flesh. Yeah. That's why I love this image so much. It's so delightful. Ah! And so this is like the, the climax of the story. She starts, she freaks out. She's like, I won't have somebody who believes in idols. She takes a broom and starts hitting him on the back. And he just lets her. He's just stunned. And he, he she hits him so much that it almost feels like he's going to get knocked out. And welts on his back appears bruises on the face of Christ. Mm-hmm. And then he leaves and he goes to a tree in their yard. And it says at the very end, there he was, who called himself Obadiah Elihu, leaning against the tree, crying like a baby. He's been baptized, mm-hmm. in a sense, in a way, right? Yeah. He's before the tree. He has died with Christ. He's entered into the suffer. Yeah, he's entered into the suffering of Christ. He's before a tree, referencing the cross, mm-hmm. crying like a baby. And the tree of he life has ever changed. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's why it's so wonderful. That's why I love this story so much. And yeah, it's it is a very deeply sacramental thing. I mean, it, a lot of people look at it just because like the vanity of him and like the only thing he doesn't do is his back. But it's really much more than this. It's a it's this idea that if God became man, grace has to work through nature, mm-hmm. right? And that like like. In a way, like, and it shows you how belief 
what you believe does actually impact how you live. Like, so it actually shows this connection between belief and life. So for example, with Sarah, because of this like kind of almost abstraction and pure spirit view of God, she sees nothing in the world as good. Like, yeah, uh, I, to be honest, it's it's almost it's more Muslim than it is Christian. Right, she's thin because she just kind of eats. She stays puts away no from paint food. on her face. She doesn't put any paint on her face. Right, like these little details that reveal something. Right, she going doesn't on. actually see any of the stuff that's actually good. Right, mm-hmm. she yeah, this idea even churches are idolatry and everything like that. This idea that God is this it is true. God is pure spirit, but God is also incarnational. Right, so it's really this kind of it's try it's kind of actually that's why I was asking a question about apologetics because I think it does again on a secondary level poke holes at a Protestant view of Christianity. Absolutely. Because the thing is, it's not just like a, a conversion thing. It's like a you need to take this seriously. Yeah. This incarnation thing is everything. Yeah. And that, oh, oh, and that's the other thing. That that, it takes on the same intensity that the Protestants in her stories often take. Yeah. Right? Because like this, uh, yeah, it yeah, now you're actually a bunch of ideas from other stories are starting to pop into my head here, because mm-hmm. there is a, both a seriousness in a lot of these people and also like a almost a despair in their worldview and a lot of her characters and a lot of her stories who are like pastors and preachers and stuff like this, right? Yeah. So um, like Good Man and Hard to Find, there's a lot of despair in the pastor mm-hmm. in that one and stuff like this. So this is a very interesting thing that she's trying to bring out, and that's why I think there is a secondary apologetics there to say. If Christianity is really what it says it is, then the nature actually both, and and not just that, God actually works through the signs of the world, right? Because like, how does Zoe have this kind of first kind of sort of conversion? It's with this tree and the sun, and then he sees this light, and then at the tree at the end. These are natural signs Mm -hmm. and symbols that God uses to point to something more. Sacramentality. Tattooed guy at a fair. Yeah, that's the other thing, right? This desire it awakes a desire. Right, and this is why he's never satisfied with any of his tattoos because it's not actually sad. Mm-hmm. It's awakened a desire that I, he thinks it's the tattoos that will bring him fulfillment. If I get all this done perfectly, I will be a perfect. I will, I will be unique in this world because it's a unique mm-hmm. thing, right? And it'll because that's the thing. Like, there's a guy with tattoos. He's unique. He is. Yeah, he matters. He matters, and that what awakes in him this idea. Like, wait, maybe it does matter that I exist. So yeah. that so he imitates this man because that's what desire always does it always imitates first but it's also never satisfied right he's right. never satisfied with any of the tattoos except it seems like he's actually satisfied with the one on the back why because the incarnation is what makes you matter exactly you mattered enough to christ that he became one of you yeah. he became a human being that's what makes you matter yeah. that's what makes you like your existence means something yeah, yeah. And so it's wonderful. So I, you know, so I think if you take anything away from this, if you have a, a, a deeper understanding of what Flannery is doing, I think all of her stories just open up. And there's a ton in this story that we didn't talk about. All these little illusions and images here and there. Um, and so reading here becomes uh, just much more fruitful in understanding what she's doing there. So read a bunch of Flannery. Read her letters. I think she's wonderful. And that's all I have to say. Any final thoughts, Father Harrison? Oh, read her. Yeah. Read her. Yeah, it's also like a, a refreshing break because her stories, they're, they're a bit of a palate cleanser in a way because they're so shocking and intense. And Oh. Like a lot, a lot of times. Okay, yeah, now yeah. I remember. Yeah. 
this is the thing. Like you're talking about this. Like, yeah, it's shocking, right? She's trying to wake up the world because what happens in all her characters, it's these sudden, almost violent forms of grace because she's trying to awaken. Like, she sees desire as numbed, right? Mm-hmm. And this is this is our contemporary predicament. It's not that people don't yeah. want it. It's not that people don't necessarily even not not believe in God. It's that they don't see a connection between God and the truth and life. You don't see a connection between truth and life. Truth doesn't affect your desire. And if it doesn't awaken your desire, then you're just going to walk numbingly through life. Not recognizing actually everything you're doing is coming out of your deepest desire. And that's what leads you to ruin, to addictions, to all sorts of things. And so this idea, like this is why I think in that sense, she's actually also a great apologist against modernity. Yeah. Saying. Yes, yes. I think that's, yeah. Desire, desire is there for God. we got to awaken you. Yeah. So thank you for listening. Please leave a review on iTunes and tell your friends about the podcast. Tell your enemies too, because Jesus say, says we must, love, we must love our enemies. You can find me at your local Wendy's after I have celebrated the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. You can find me at FR Harrison on Twitter. Contact the podcast and receive updates at ClericalPod on Twitter or email us at clericalspeaking at gmail.com. Or on Facebook. Peace. Or on Facebook. God bless. Peace.